The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. Remember, remember the 5th of November. You're probably wondering exactly why should I remember the 5th of November, Stein? Well, I'll tell you, because I'll be hosting the Friday Farage, as in Nigel Farage, live on GB News in the United Kingdom for a full hour, Friday at 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Meantime, on with the show. We'll have a poem for Guy Fawkes Night, Bonfire Night. Actually, a poem in Latin, because to modify my usual line, if video poetry is where the big bucks are, Latin poetry is where the mega bucks are. Let's start with a couple of postscripts to U.S. election night on Tuesday. As I mentioned, the papers reported that Quote, suburban women, suburban women. Do you like suburban women? Uh, You know, sometimes I'm in the mood for urban women, uh, sometimes for rural women, but suburban women, uh, I don't know. I think it's because they're so demographically significant in U.S. elections that it's made them kind of snooty in their cul-de-sacs and mommy vans. Anyway, a year ago, suburban women were reported as having abandoned Trump for Biden. On Tuesday night in Virginia, they were reported as having abandoned Biden and uh, come home to the Republicans. Charles Romer, a first weekend founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Texas, says... So thanks all for proving me right. I've maintained for many years, and especially after witnessing the cultural victories of Islam in recent years, that the trouble became irreversible back in 1919 when Western suburban women gained the power to destroy their own civilization. How is that working out for all of us now? Uh, Mr. Roma is referring there to the 19th Amendment when uh, American women gained the right uh, to vote. Uh, We have an alternative view of women's suffrage on today's 100 Years Ago show coming up a little later. Don't miss it. Uh, More good news from Tuesday night. By now, many of you will have heard of Edward Durr, a Republican who has never held elected office but will go down in history as the truck driver who knocked off the president of the New Jersey Senate, a guy who spent 20 years in Trenton. Mr. Durr says his campaign spent just $153. Because it's not about the money. American politics has more than enough money. And one consequence of that is that if you respond to the daily appeal to send money now to sendmoneynow.com, You wind up with politicians who are good at raising money and nothing else. Jeb Bush springs to mind. Jeb Bush, the chap who blew through 100 million bucks to get 2.4% of the vote in Iowa, which I wouldn't have thought possible. As I always say, I could get more than 2.4% in Iowa and I'm not even eligible. And there's another aspect, too. I would say on the Democrat side that... The donors and the voters are broadly in sync, whereas on the Republican side, there's a huge gulf between what the donor class wants and what Republican voters want. So I rejoice in candidates who can spend 153 bucks and win. And the other problem with big money candidates is that they give all their dough to wanker consultants. 
abs- absolutely the worst aspect of the professionalization of politics, wanker consultants. Uh, fortunately, after Trump came along and won with a campaign budget that per capita isn't so far off uh, what Mr. Durr spent in New Jersey, all after after Trump came along, all the most useless and expensive consultants flounced, flounced off in a great big huff and formed the Lincoln Project. They claimed to be never Trumpers and quickly became uh, never anything that threatens the interests of the Democrat Party. Strange that. But again, that's the nature of politics in this polarized two-party system. Uh, You can't just be a never Trumper because you have no power or influence. There's only two parties. So if you want to be a player, you've got to be a player in one of them. Uh, especially if you're just in it for yourself and for the money, like these awful consultants. Uh, So their instant reaction, the Lincoln Project guys, their instant reaction to Mr. Youngkin's victory in Virginia was the following tweet, quote, We're coming for you, Glenn Youngkin. No pro forma stuff about how the people have spoken and democracy must be respected. Just a threat to come and get him. We're waiting for you at the tire iron in the back alley, Glenn Youngkin. That's how the Lincoln Project reacted to the expression of the people's will. The Lincoln Project, a gang of pedo enablers who like playing dress-up Klansmen. That's the Lincoln Project. And yet no matter what they do, they can't seem to get themselves uninvited from MSNBC appearances. You recall that one of their leaders, uh, floppo Republican consultant Rick Wilson, uh, declined to appear with me on Rush, uh, whatever it is now, I guess five years ago, to discuss his views on Trump. He, he didn't want to argue the, uh, the issue with me. Instead, he prefers to tweet the likes of the following addressed to Ann Coulter. Does Trump pay you more for anal? These are awful, vile, disgusting people. Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt, sex predator John Weaver. Trump rendered their business model obsolete. And even if he had done nothing else, that would be a signal service uh, to the republic. We need many more Edward Durs of New Jersey and far fewer Rick Wilsons. Bottom story of the day, as James Taranto used to say in his much-missed Best of the Web feature at the Wall Street Journal. Bottom story of the day. Don't worry, not bottom in the sense that Rick Wilson fantasizes about. This is about her former Royal Highness Meghan Markle, once a member of the royal family, but now apparently some sort of DC lobbyist. Ms. Markle personally called Senator Shelley Moore Capito, Republican of West Virginia, and Senator Susan Collins, Republican of Maine, to advocate for paid family leave. This is according to Politico. The Biden administration and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and the Democrats, they all want paid family leave. And uh, Ms. Markle supports the Democrats, Uh, and wants the so-called moderate Republicans to reach across the aisle and also support the Democrats. I'm in my car. I'm driving, says uh, Senator Shelley Moore Capito. It says caller ID blocked. Honestly, I thought it was Senator Manchin. His call's come in blocked. And she goes, Senator Capito? I said, yes. She said, this is Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex. 
Susan Collins in Maine said, Much to my surprise, she called me on my private line and she introduced herself as the Duchess of Sussex, which is kind of ironic. I was happy to talk with her, but I'm more interested in what the people of Maine are telling me about it. Uh, Pache, Senator Collins, is not really ironic. My chum, Conrad Black, was kind enough to take the witness box on my behalf at, I think, uh, the second trial of Loser Cockwomble, Carry Cats and Blaze TV's Many Suits Against Me. I, I'm pretty sure it was the second trial. I lose track a bit. Um, and Conrad is, of course, a member of the House of Lords. He's the Right Honourable, the Lord Black of Cross Harbour. And Loser Cockwomble, Carry Cats' lawyer, Geoffrey Mitchell, a brown George Ross, absolutely terrible law firm. They, they can't even win against a penniless, Canadian, no matter how often they sue me. Uh, anyway, Jeffrey Mitchell stood up and started with a big lot of huffing and a puffing about how he was a freeborn American, and so he wasn't going to prostrate himself before some fancy pants peer of the realm, and so he was just going to address Conrad as Mr. Black. Not Lord Black, just Mr. Black, which he proceeded to do. And Conrad said very affably, oh, by all means, I don't bother with the title in Republican countries. Now, he's a Canadian. He's a subject of the Crown. Ms. Markle isn't. And as I understand it, this is one of those Republican countries that Conrad was talking about. Ms. Markle is a citizen of the American Republic, and within her... Majesty's dominions, she chafed, apparently, at having to curtsy to the Queen. So uh, at least when she's in Her Majesty's realm, she doesn't dig all the hierarchical regal stuff. Yet here she is using her husband's royal dukedom to lobby American politicians, which she could not do in Britain or Canada or Belize or Tuvalu or wherever. It would be a political scandal. Nobody needs social justice from a royal duchess. Strip this awful pair of their titles, Your Majesty. Your grandfather did it to people who did far less damage to the royal family than these tedious hacks. Uh, if they want to lobby Susan Collins, they should do it as Mr. and Mrs. Meghan Markle. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. Well, most anywhere in Britain and the Commonwealth at this time of year, there is a general familiarity with these lines. And in fact, even in America, if only for viewers of the motion picture V for Vendetta. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, gunpowder, treason and plot. I know of no reason why gunpowder, treason should ever be forgot. And it hasn't been really, not as far as uh, ragamuffins wheeling around effigies of Guy Fawkes and then burning him on a giant bonfire. Uh, I far prefer it to Halloween and... Uh, Disney princesses hitting you up for Walmart grab bags of Tootsie Rolls and Jolly Ranchers and other inedibles. Um, not many of those Brit kids, I wager, would now know much about the event their burning guy is commemorating. Uh, it was an assassination attempt on King James in 1605, James I, of course, by a group of papists who wished 
to install the king's nine-year-old daughter Elizabeth as a Catholic monarch. It was a very ambitious plot. They had 36 barrels of gunpowder, enough to blow the House of Lords sky-high during the state opening of Parliament. If you've seen a throne speech in Ottawa or London or Canberra or Port Moresby, you'll know that every big shot in the state is there. So if they'd pulled it off, there would have been a huge vacuum of power. After those familiar remember, remember lines, the rest of the poem explains what came next. Guy Fawkes, Guy Fawkes, twas his intent to blow up the king and parliament. Three score barrels of powder below, poor old England to overthrow. By God's providence he was catched with a dark lantern and burning match. His just end shouldst be grim. What should we do? Burn him. Uh, Stirring stuff. Uh, But if you prefer something a little more formal, this is by John Milton. That's right, the uh, Paradise Lost Fellow. But this is before he became the Paradise Lost Fellow, back when he was 17, a schoolboy, and decided to write a poem in Latin called In Quintum Novembris on the 5th of November. Uh, It ends thus, Ataman interea populi miserescit ab alto, Aetherius pater, et crudelibus obstitit ausis, papicolum capti poenis raptanto ad acres, at pia thora deo et grati solvuntur honores, compiter lighter focus, genialibus omnia fument, turba chorus juvenelis agit, quintoque novembris nulla dies toto accurit celebratio anno. Uh, which means, as I'm sure I don't need to tell you, but meanwhile the Heavenly Father looks mercifully upon his people from on high and thwarts the outrages that the papists have dared. They are seized and dragged off to painful punishments. Pious incense and grateful honours are given to God. The joyous streets smoke with genial flames. In throngs the youth go dancing in all the year. No day is more celebrated than the 5th of November. Uh, Well, we'll see what COVID has to say about that. But on balance, my favourite gunpowder treason poem is that of an even younger teenager, a 16-year-old pupil, a year younger than young Master Milton, a 16-year-old pupil at Westminster School, Edward Hawes. Uh, who wrote a work called Traitorous Purses and Catesby's Prosopopeia, uh, which is the rhetorical device of creating an inanimate or ghostly speaker. In this case, we have two ghostly speakers, the shades of Thomas Percy and Robert Catesby, in conversation with two very inanimate objects, the severed heads of Thomas Percy and Robert Catesby. It is a dispute between penitence and defiance, even in death, and not bad for a teenage schoolboy. First published by Simon Stafford in 1606 by Edward Hawes, an excerpt from Traitorous Percy's and Catesby's Prosopopeia, the ghost of Thomas Percy speaks and indicts himself. 
Thou cursed brain, inventor of destruction, thou prison house of tribulation's plot, thou gross rejecter of instruction for mischief made and not for better lot, which hast thine own prosperity betrayed, and me thy soul in hellish sorrow laid. Angels with earthly minds aspired too high, so cursed were, and lost their first estate. So unto torments cast, therein they lie, and most for time without an ending date. Why didst thou not their ruin recognize, before thou gainst this wicked enterprise? How couldst thou think that he which sits on high, viewing the hearts of all the sons of men, unfolding all and the least secrecy, wheresoever what, by whom devised and when, would any way they plotted treason's favour, but in due time with shame requite thy labour? What did bewitched, that thou could so forget Jehovah's love, his justice, power, and might, wherewith he tangleth traitors in the net, and them with sword of just revenge doth smite. Hereof examples thou hadst very many, but not regarding, didst not credit any. O oh, that thy country's love could have restrained thy wicked heart, from plotting such a woe, whereby with horror all had been disdained, with outcries, rage, and bloody overthrow, but all remorse was from thy heart exiled, when wicked hopes thy judgment had beguiled. And the severed head of Robert Catesby responds, Thou, silly soul, examples dost produce, which could not me reform, for I was blind. Of mercy, love, and truth I made no use, that wallet's part I always cast behind. Like them which see their neighbours die today, and yet do think themselves shall live for I. And like the fond and foolish mariner, that though before him he do see the certs, swallowing the fellow ships, a follower yet will he be, when safety him begirts, with strong suppose to pass that danger by, but is deceived and racked, in so was I. A poem in part from Me to You by 16-year-old Edward Hawes of Westminster School. He got one thing right uh, that uh, the popular consciousness hasn't. Catesby and Percy had far more prominent roles in the plot of the gunpowder plot than Guy Fawkes, who was basically there because of his familiarity with the workings of gunpowder. Uh, but I don't suppose having uh, urchins wandering the streets demanding penny for the guy uh, would work so well if they were demanding penny for the Percy. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. Robert Fox, a first-week founding member of the Mark Stein Club from Iowa, says, uh, Hi, Mark. 
I see the trend toward an all-electric vehicle fleet in the United States, coupled with more reliance on unreliable and expensive forms of electrical generation, i.e. wind and solar, as a way for the left to cause a gross imbalance between an ever-shrinking supply of electricity and a soaring increase in demand for it. This will cause electricity costs to skyrocket with implications for freedom of movement and general economic behaviour. I believe this is intentional so that the tyrants will have a massive weapon to use in their war on the citizenry. What say you? Well, Robert, if you pay attention to all this drivel at uh, whatever it's called, COP26, COP or as Joe Biden calls it, the G, <laughs> the G26, uh, if he was paying attention, he'd notice that at COP26, there were a lot more than 26 world leaders. I think there's, uh, well, there's basically everyone except the guys who matter in this area, like the Chinese and the Russians. Anyway, uh, if you listen to the way they talk, it's clear that their intent is that you, Mr. and Mrs. Joe Schmo of 23B Elm Street, should be moving around less. Uh, they they like to fly about. They don't want you flying about, and uh, they'd like you driving less too. And in fact, over the last uh, year and a half, many places that we once thought of as free societies, such as Ireland or certain Australian states, have implemented very restrictive uh, prescriptions on freedom of movement. You can't go more than three miles or five kilometres from your house. Uh, and uh, the, the broader point you make that in support of that, they advocate policies that will make electricity and thus travel prohibitively expensive, uh, I think is well put. I saw the other day, I think this was in the Philadelphia Inquirer, but it might have been another newspaper, uh, a report that with the shortage of coal, for example, some power plants... Uh, uh, have uh, basically 10 days supply. And that's the point at which they can uh, order certain electric companies or whatever to restrict power, i.e. blackouts. Now, if you recall what happened in Texas a little while back, uh, where there happened to be a kind of a cold snap, which is unusual for Texas, and the entire, uh, much of the state was plunged into a for for them, free absolutely freezing blackouts for days on end. There was a system failure. Now, you imagine that applied to the typical, well, just where I am. If you imagine that applied to the typical New Hampshire winter, you don't want to be without power. Very difficult, particularly if you've got an old house or whatever, and there's a cold snap and uh, keeping all your pipes together. Now, 10 days. Now, that that's what they have at the moment. We talk about the supply chain problems, but we take it as read that while we might not be able to get that Christmas toy the kid wants in time, that the lights will stay on. We're actually moving into a very dodgy phase where the lights might not stay on. And, and as Robert points out, this is part of an intentional plan uh, to, to soften us up, to get used to traveling less. I mean, at a certain point, you couldn't get 
over a hundred world leaders to gather in Glasgow and talk the crap they're talking if they weren't somehow persuaded that it's in their interests or even in the planet's interest uh, to, ad- to, to advance the propositions they're advancing. And one consequence of this, you know, we, we, the 19th century, the greatest invention of the 19th century was invention. That is when, as I consider it, when our civilization peaked. And among the other things they did was they conquered night with electricity and the invention of the electric light bulb. So productive work or even interesting life didn't cease uh, when the sun went down and you could only do things by candlelight. Uh, but they also uh, conquered distance with the invention of the internal combustion engine. We are now we don't we are now in the bizarre situation where uh, almost the entire planet, except Russia and China, is meeting in Scotland to figure out how to roll back those transformations and keep us in our place. And on a related theme, Xavier. A first-day member of the Stein Club from Ohio says, Hi, Mark. It feels like we might be entering or have already entered a period of late-stage capitalism. As you've noted, it has become prohibitively expensive to put a dollar into an American employee's pocket. As Thomas Piketty has pointed out, when the rate of return on capital is greater than the rate of economic growth over the long term, the result is concentration of wealth. And this unequal distribution of wealth causes social and economic instability. Have we just reached a point where many successful members of society keep doing the things that made them successful, i.e. keep putting money into the stock market, while unsuccessful members of society are either stuck in the same bad habits or do not know how to access the systems necessary to increase social mobility. I would love to get your thoughts on any of these. Also, any chance we could hear your full COVID-modified version of Monster Mash? Uh, says Xavier. That I I just started doing that when I was in for Rush. Uh, I think it was last year at the time when Kamala Harris was when she was asked whether she was going to take what was then known as the Trump vaccine. I mean the parties have switched on this. At that time, uh, the MAGA guys were all hot for the Trump vaccine, which hadn't yet been and it had been announced as in development, but it wasn't actually out there. And uh, it was the Democrats who all, I'm not, you've got to be crazy to put that Trump juice into your body. Uh, and that was basically what Kamala Harris said. And I, I think I responded on Rush by saying, well, he, look, he's not actually mixing it up in the Oval Office, uh, in the anteroom to the Oval Office, where uh, Clinton used to be pleasured by Monica. He hasn't turned that into a laboratory. And I went, I was working in my lab late one night. And uh, I haven't actually, I'm not sure how the song goes from there, but thank you for that, Xavier. On your substantive point, though, which is about the concentration of wealth and the unequal distribution of wealth, you know, I I, use, I joke that uh, the world is governed effectively by half a dozen woke billionaires, the fellows who dominate the so big social media cartel. Uh, but in fact, they may sooner than you think become woke trillionaires, uh, and and the gap between 
the rich and powerful and the losers is wider than it's ever been, in, particularly in the United States. A hedge funder and a, uh, a schlub who does the night shift at a convenience store do not inhabit the same society, even in the sense that a Marquis and his valet uh, do. I'm reminded of a... It was a very vivid line when I first read it. Uh, Disraeli, not from any political speech, but from his novel Sybil, a uh, roman à thèse. Uh, which is a novel on a thesis, uh, something I'm rather partial to. If you can, it's difficult to pull off, but if you can pull it off well, it's uh, it's terrific. A roman à thèse, which Sybil certainly is, as you can tell from its subtitle, The Two Nations. Anyway, in the course of that, Disraeli has one of his characters observed that in a healthy society, there has to be, quote, some resting place between luxury and misery. Uh, that is what we would know as the middle class. And some people fall out of the middle class and back into misery. And some people rise from the middle class and into luxury. Our elites have spent really uh, this new millennium shrinking the resting places between luxury and misery. As you know, Social mobility, uh, I don't need to tell you, Xavier, because it's really what your letter's about. Uh, as Social mobility, which is the essence of the American dream, uh, has shrunk dramatically this century. If you're a... So, so just to go back to the same point we were discussing earlier with electricity, if you're a celebrity who flies in his own plane to the Glasgow Climate Summit in order to lecture presidents and prime ministers uh, to crack down on losers in double wides who like flying coach to Disneyland once every couple of years, what do you care if electricity costs go up 400%? Jeff Bezos wouldn't even notice that if they went up 4,000%. The gulf between how you live and how 99% of everybody else lives is uh, wider uh, than in medieval Europe, at least in terms of the horizons, which is always the danger in societies that have no resting places between luxury and misery. If that sounds familiar, it's basically a, a Latin American social order. There's the president and his cronies at the top, and there's a great dysfunctional swamp of nobodies below them, and there's no intervening, gradated social order. Uh, no resting place, in, in Disraeli's marvelous uh, phrase, between luxury and misery. And that is the world that they are planning for us, frankly, uh, at uh, what Joe Biden calls the G26. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. The Deutschmark drops, a king ascends, and Canadian football advances. It's November 1921. A hundred years from today. The World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues in the new Weimar Republic that arose in the ruins of the Kaiser's fallen empire, the Deutschmark has dropped to an all-time low of less than one quarter of an American penny, 
with $1 now being the equivalent of over 240 marks against the pound sterling. It's currently around 750 marks or a quarter of its value at the beginning of the year. As inflation spirals out of control in Germany, the Allied Reparations Commission has announced that they will be arriving in Berlin to determine the likelihood of Germany making its next reparations payment of 400 million gold marks to France due on January the 15th. The rampant inflation may be having an effect on German politics. We have mentioned before the National Socialist German Workers' Party under its charismatic leader Adolf Hitler. The National Socialists are not to everyone's taste, which is why they have a Saalschutzabteilung, the Meeting Hall Defense Division. Following a meeting at the Hofbrauhaus in Munich at which Bolsheviks and others attempted to disrupt Herr Hitler's oratory, the National Socialists have now renamed the Meeting Hall Defense Division the Storm Division, the Sturmabteilung, or S. A. They wear brown shirts and serve as a paramilitary wing of the rising political party. To judge from the songs, most Allied troops in France received a warm welcome from the locals, but that may not be the whole story. Have American soldiers been hanged by the French without a trial? U.S. Senator Thomas Watson of Georgia says so, and his fellow senators have now ordered a special subcommittee to investigate. The U.S. State Department has notified the Republic of China of a default on Peking's debt of $5.5 million. China has significant government debt, much of which is held by the Americans. His Britannic Majesty's government has asked the Soviet regime in Moscow to be more specific regarding which pre-war debts of the Russian Empire it will pay back to Great Britain. Following his failed attempt to reclaim his Hungarian throne, the former Habsburg Emperor Karoy was arrested with Empress Zita. There was then a diplomatic intervention by the Allies, and the deposed monarch and his wife have been deported to Madeira. The National Assembly has passed a bill barring all Habsburgs from participation in government forever and repealing the so-called pragmatic sanction of 1713, under which the family had ruled Hungary. There were concerns that German monarchists might use the funeral of the late King Ludwig III of Bavaria to agitate for the restoration of the House of Wittelsbach. Instead, the ceremony with full state honours passed off without incident, and the pretender, Prince Ruprecht, avoided any mention of his claim to the throne. I've got ten little fingers and ten little poles down in Tennessee waiting there for me. I never had a baby call me dada. How proud I know I'll be when I hear it calling me. Oh, gee, I'll miss 
every finger, I'll kiss every toe. At home, sweet home, I'll linger, for they'll need me there, I know. Although it only weighs ten pounds and just one day old, I wouldn't give it up for all the world and its gold. For I've got ten little fingers and ten little toes. It's now 20 little fingers and 20 little toes in the royal household of Egypt. Prince Farouk now has a little sister, Princess Fawzia, a first daughter for the Sultan and his second Sultana. After a prolonged absence in Paris for medical reasons, Alexander, the new king of the Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, has returned to the capital city of Belgrade and formally assumed the throne. Serb forces marked the inauguration of King Alexander's reign by invading Albania. Here's a Japanese sneaking on with a view. Just an old second-hand man, by your old days from Beware the Japanese railman. Haratakashi became Prime Minister of Japan in 1918. He was at the Tokyo Railway Station preparing to board a train to Kyoto for a party conference when he was fatally stabbed by Nakaoka Konuchi, a railwayman who believed Mr. Takashi was planning to introduce universal suffrage. For many years, the Emirate of Jabal Shamar on the Arabian Peninsula enjoyed the protection of the Turkish Sultan, but the Ottoman Empire is gone, and after many years of fighting, Jabal Shamar has been overrun by the armies of Abdulaziz bin Abdul al Saud and been incorporated into the Sultanate of Najd. The All India Congress Committee has voted in favour of continuing its support of the Mahatma Gandhi's passive resistance movement against the government of the Raj. In the United States, the National Convention of the American Legion in Kansas City also saw the formal breaking of ground for the Liberty Memorial. Vice President Coolidge and General Pershing were in attendance along with representatives of America's comrades in arms, Supreme Allied Commander Marshal Foch of France, Admiral of the Fleet Earl Beatty, Great Britain's first sea lord, uh, Lieutenant General Baron Jacques of Belgium and General Diaz of Italy. Back in General Diaz's homeland, the Kingdom of Italy's unknown soldier has been buried with appropriate tribute at the Victor Emmanuel Monument. America's capital city has a fifth daily newspaper, this time an afternoon paper, the Washington Daily News. But is the future of news dissemination in radio? The most powerful wireless transmitter array on Earth has opened at Rocky Point on Long Island, New York. With 12 technologically advanced transmitters, the station is six times more powerful than that at Arlington in Virginia and has a broadcast signal that can 
reach halfway around the planet to Asia. In sports news, the forward pass is well established in American football, a reform dating back 15 years to a terrible season that saw the death of 19 players. It has now been tested in Canadian football in an exhibition game in Montreal between McGill University and a visiting team from Syracuse University. Robert Boo Anderson of McGill is the man who attempted the Dominion's first forward pass. By the sea, by the beautiful sea, you and I, you and I, oh how happy we'll be. November so far has been anything but beautiful at sea. The French cargo ship Le Député Gaston Dumenil left Penarth, Glamorgan for Rouen but founded in the Bristol Channel with all men lost. A storm off the coast of Cape May, New Jersey, has killed 11 fishermen who had been at sea to take up their fishing nets for the winter. 15 of the 19 crew on the Swedish cargo ship Belgrove died when the ship was lost in the North Sea off Denmark near Lundstrup. 16 of the 18 crew of the Norwegian cargo ship Alf died when the ship founded in the North Sea off the English coast near Lowestoft. Wait till you get them up in the air, boys. Wait till you get them up in the air. You can make them hug and squeeze you too. Or if they don't, just say you won't come down until they do. It may be safer to fly. Test pilot Bert Acosta has won the Pulitzer Trophy in a Curtis CR2 by establishing a new closed circuit airspeed record of 176.7 miles per hour. Oscar Montelius, the Swedish archaeologist who refined the relative dating method of seriation, is dead at 78. He and his late wife Agda, the philanthropist and suffragist, will be buried in a dolmen, a megalithic tomb common in Scandinavia, during the Nordic Bronze Age of circa 1500 years BC. Antoinette Brown Blackwell was the first woman in America to serve as an ordained minister at the Congregationalist Church in South Butler, New York, from 1852. Women, she said, are needed in the pulpit as imperatively and for the same reason that they are needed in the world, because they are women. Women have become, or when the ingrained habit of unconscious imitation has been superseded, they will become indispensable to the religious evolution of the human race. Last year, she became the only surviving delegate from the 1850 Women's Rights Conference to live to see the passage of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The Reverend Blackwell is dead at the age of 96. And that's the way of the world, November 1921. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. This is Mark Stein on Stein's Song of the Week. This week, a song from the world's longest-running musical. Everyone sung it. Well, not everyone. Barbara Streisand's never sung it, but her ex-husband has. I've never sung it, but my neighbour has. And now I think of it, the person who had the biggest-selling top ten hit with the song didn't actually bother singing it. Hope you'll join me for Stein's Song of the Week Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on Serenade Radio.
And 5.30pm Greenwich Mean Time this Sunday is 12.30pm North American Eastern, 9.30am on the West Coast. So it's a Sunday brunchy kind of show over here. As a postscript to our 100 Years Ago show on Sunday, on our Weekend Anthology edition, I... Uh, published a note from Carol Hawkins, an Ontario member of the Mark Stein Club, on her father Norman's 100th birthday this Tuesday. So the 100 Years Ago show uh, is not the remote past to Norman that it is for our more youthful listeners, but it's the world he was born into. He hails from England, from Earlstown, Newton La Willows, now in Merseyside, but back in 1921 in Lancashire. That's how much everything in the world has been overturned. Norman's birthplace isn't even in the same county. He was in the Merchant Marine during the Second World War and twice had his ship sunk from under him. He then moved to Canada, married a nice Ontario girl, had a family, skied until he was 95, golfed until he was 99, lives independently, so he's not in one of those old folks' homes where they wall you up with uh, whatever strain of the COVID they're anxious to promote. He lives independently and he celebrated his century at the Royal Canadian Legion at Collingwood on Tuesday. And after we'd wished him all the best and many happy returns, I chanced to look up what the number one song in America was on the day he was born. And it's not really appropriate because it's all about loneliness. And Norman has a great family and a lot of chums, but it is a very good song. The biggest selling hit in America, 100 years ago, November 1921, Frank Crummett sings Irving Berlin. I'm so unhappy, what'll I do? I long for somebody who will sympathize with me. I'm growing so tired of living alone. I lie awake all night and cry. Nobody loves me, that's why. All by myself in the morning. All by myself in the night. I'm still alone in the cozy morris chair. So unhappy there, playing solitaire, all by myself I get lonely, watching the clock on the shelf, I'd love to rest my weary head on somebody's shoulder, I hate to grow older, all by myself. A hundredth birthday song for Carol Hawkins' dear old dad, who certainly isn't all by himself this week. Happy birthday, Norman. That was the most popular song in America when you were born in November 1921. The line about the cosy Morris chair is a reference to a prototype recliner made by the famous William Morris of England. So you may even have had one in your boyhood home of Newton La Willow, but I certainly hope you have one now because you've earned it. Words and music by Irving Berlin, the very first recording by Frank Crummett. And of course, there have been hundreds of other recordings through the ensuing century. 
that'll do it for today's show. If you like me in audio, I'll be on Serenade Radio, the Stein Song of the Week today, Thursday at 9 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. That's 5 p.m. North American Eastern, 2 p.m. on the West Coast, because Newton Lewillows has fallen back to winter. While in Collingwood, Ontario, they remain sprung into summer. If you prefer me on video, I'll be in for Nigel on the Friday Farage, live on GB News, 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. That's 3 p.m. North American Eastern. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oakham Media. All rights reserved.